KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, summer vacations. How about Wyoming? Most people traveling to Wyoming this summer are hiking in the Tetons, watching the geysers in Yellowstone, or taking the float trip down the Snake River, but not John Nichols. He went to Wyoming to see Liz Cheney campaigning to hold on to her House seat in the August 16th primary. We'll have his report later in the hour. Also, from the archives, Peter Richardson on Carrie McWilliams, the historian and editor from the 40s, 50s, and 60s, who's one of our heroes. But first, today's political update with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect. We reached him today at home in our nation's capital. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here. Well, first, I'd love to talk about the big bill Joe Biden is about to sign into law. The Democrats are calling it the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, $750 billion. Got an email from Al Franken calling it the most significant piece of legislation since the Affordable Care Act. Wonder if you agree with that? Actually, I do. I, w I would say that it, it, if you think about that for a minute, it, it's not the world's highest bar to clear. There, there haven't been a <laughs> lot of really significant uh, bills enacted since the Affordable Care Act. The Republicans control Congress during the remainder of uh, Obama's presidency. And this is certainly the biggest uh, bill to come out of, uh, of uh, Biden's uh, presidency. So uh, yes, Al Franken is absolutely right. So um, Paul Krugman called it mainly a climate change bill with the side helping of health reform. Is that a good way to think about it? Yes, it is. Uh, it, what the bill mainly uh, allots, uh, either allots funding for or gives tax credits for or what have you, uh, is, is really a shift uh, to a greener uh, energy economy and uh, uh, reduction of, of, uh, of climate change. That is the major component of the bill. Uh, there are three components, really. That's the first. Uh, the second, to satisfy Joe Manchin, uh, well, there are really two Manchin uh, issues here, uh, is a reduction of the deficit uh, to which uh, $300 billion of the nearly 800 billion that's coming in and uh, tax increases uh, is uh, devoted to. And of course, Manchin wanted uh, some legislation that would uh, make uh, things easier for particular fossil fuel concerns. Uh, but uh, those are really, I think, if you look at this, and most of the environmental groups have concluded this as well, uh, more than offset by the uh, uh, changing energy sources the bill encourages and uh, its effect on climate change. Then the third component is a reduction of some healthcare expenses, uh, enabling Medicare uh, to negotiate the price of drugs, although that's limited initially to just 10 drugs, and that doesn't start until 2026. The more- doesn't, That doesn't sound too good to me. No, it, no, no, it's a foot in the door, but you know, you need basically to just, you know, uh, uh, stomp down the door altogether. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I think more significant is uh, 
putting a cap on what Medicare recipients have to shell out a year in co-pays of $2,000, which will be a great relief to many seniors, and putting a $35 cap on uh, insulin uh, expenditures, uh, again, uh, just for for Medicare seniors, because uh, the Republicans defeated a separate measure that would have established this across the board for for everybody who needs, uh, needs to take insulin. So then I also want to talk about the tax part of this, which has some pretty interesting aspects A 15% minimum tax on corporations. This sounds great to me. Uh, I looked this up. 55 of the biggest corporations paid zero income taxes in 2020. Companies like FedEx, Nike, Dish Network. Now they're all going to have to pay 15%, right? Uh, most of them probably. Uh, the uh, ineffable Kristen Cinema, Kirsten Cinema, <laughs> excuse me, really kind of exempted companies that are in manufacturing uh, from uh, paying this full fifteen percent, and she also uh, managed to exclude private equity uh, uh, companies and presumably their subsidiaries. Although nobody really thought uh, this tax hike was directed at their uh, companies that uh, private equity owns uh, from this uh, tax as well. Uh, I I had suggested in a tweet, by the way, that in as much as cinema clearly, uh, you know, does the bidding of, of the very rich and has gotten a lot of criticism for that, she might be more comfortable in Russia where the <laughs> oligarchs would love this and she would be spared criticism for that. And for that reason, I suggested that when we swap folks uh, to get Brittany Griner back, that Kristen Cinema be one of the uh, people we swap. I think that's a win-win. I think everyone, <laughs> including Cinema, would be happy with that. That's the diplomacy of the highest order that's from, right. from that's uh, right. Harold Myers at that's the American right, Prospect. State Department contacts are hard at work on it, yes. So I want to talk for another minute about Kristen Cinema's main action here was to preserve the carried interest loophole. This is one of these things that none of us understand because we don't have enough money for it to matter. This is something that benefits private equity managers, small group of people. So instead of closing that loophole, because of Kirsten Cinema, we got a tax on corporate stock buybacks, which sounds also to me like a great idea. This is a practice that's reprehensible and destructive and very widespread. But then I looked at prospect.org and David Dayan says a stock buyback tax is not a great idea. Why not? Well, and David had talked to a couple economists who have worked on this for a long time, most particularly uh, Bill Lazonic at the University of Massachusetts, who first called attention to the stock buyback phenomenon in a Harvard Business Review article, I think way back around 2014. Uh, And the the problem is this, a 1% tax on stock buybacks is actually too small to do anything to stop stock buybacks, which, you know, which basically uh, are a way that corporate CEOs can reward shareholders and themselves by uh, diverting a very large share of their company's revenues uh, to buybacks rather than such you know nasty little particulars as wage increases or investment in uh, research and development or what have you. Um, 
you know, the, the Securities and Exchange Commission created this uh, possibility for buybacks back under Reagan in, in 1982. And the SEC could, you know, could just simply scrap that uh, that rule change. Uh, however, now that the government is going to derive uh, income from this 1% tax, uh, you look at, oh, God, do we have to cut services or what uh, in order to... Uh, in order to, uh, as a byproduct, really, of uh, getting rid of the stock buybacks, which are really a pernicious uh, phenomenon. So David's argument is, uh, you know, you've you've now created the possibility that, you know, we lose something, uh, uh, you know, in uh, eliminating the uh, 1% tax on uh, on stock buybacks. The government makes money off of the stock buyback Right. scam let us call it indeed indeed and uh so that's it's a problematic development i mean we don't like stock buybacks but this is not the way to curtail them okay uh, and biden has now signed an, another bill that is bipartisan the chips act this is 53 billion dollars in subsidies for semiconductor production in the united states uh and research and development in in high tech do we really need to subsidize our biggest tech corporations to compete with China? Well, the, the, you know, the, there's really a serious pro and a really serious con on this. The serious pro is we need industrial policy. And, you know, many on the left have been arguing this. I mean, Michael Harrington, God bless him, was arguing this in the mid-1970s, uh, that if you want the economy to serve the national interests, of the nation, uh, the nation needs to target those industries if they themselves are not doing sufficient investment. And it's absolutely clear that we need to produce more semiconductors. Um, They're an essential part of virtually every uh, product we use that has any uh, technology in it. And we're dependent largely on China for the supply. And so A, China is not necessarily all that inclined to help us and be with the supply chain uh, difficulties we've had in the last uh, two and a half years, uh, we're not getting them. Um, you know, and uh, uh, the auto manufacturers, the car manufacturers um, are producing fewer cars, for instance, um, and uh, auto workers are paying the penalty for that uh, because they don't have the semiconductors they need. So yes, we need an industrial policy. The con, uh, no, Intel really doesn't need uh, government investment. Intel is fabulously wealthy and so on. Now, there were initially, you know, stipulations about, well, you know, but you have to build in the United States and uh, there's still some of that, but not enough of that as a condition for the Intels of this world receiving those funds. Initially as well, uh, there was some language about, and you have to have a unionized workforce, but given, uh, you know, the, the power of, of capital, and particularly given that, you know, a number of Republicans had signed on to this bill, uh, that bit the dust rather early. So it's a mixed bag. Now, I should say that the bill really uh, is uh, appropriates over $200 billion. So there's about $150 billion that doesn't go to the intels, uh, and it goes to R&D and things like that. And, uh, uh, you know, really, I don't know anyone who objected to that. And to the creation of a large number, what, 20 or something like that, regional research centers, 
And the people like Sherrod Brown have been arguing for a long time, this is, this is exactly what the Rust Belt needs, government leadership in developing a new high-tech industry in, the, in these places. Absolutely. Uh, and I think Sherrod is right in his argument uh, on that. And I think Bernie is right in saying these companies like Intel really don't need government, su uh, government support. So as the saying goes, go figure. <laughs> so the CHIPS Act is had passed with bipartisan support and there's another bill up uh, looks like it will also pass with bipartisan support the electoral count act now most people haven't paid much attention to this but you have and it's kind of a pet peeve of mine they need to fix the way we count electoral votes on january 6th we saw how this system is so vaguely been poorly constructed that it's open to manipulation or threat from Donald Trump. So the Electoral Count Act, we now have a bipartisan draft in the Senate that is just one vote short of, of having the unbreakable uh, supermajority. Re enough Republicans want to fix this so that we never have the January 6th repeating. So, but tell us what is in this bill and, and what's missing from this bill? One of the things in the bill goes to sort of the uh, uh, basic flaw that Donald Trump was seeking to exploit uh, on January 6th, and that is uh, he thought uh, Vice President Pence could simply, as the guy who opens the envelopes, uh, could say, well, I don't like this result, uh, and I'm going to send it back to the states, or I'm going to say there's some other slate of electors we should uh, anoint. Uh, so it eliminates that. It makes clear. I think the word is ministerial. Uh, it it uh, it restricts uh, any errant vice president uh, uh, charged with opening the envelopes from doing anything except opening the envelopes and reading what is there. Okay. Uh, and and to deal with the whole issue of rival slates of electors. Uh, which the Republicans tried to get going in several swing states that Biden carried. Uh, it says, well, there's only one slate of electors that can be submitted. Uh, the governor of the state has to sign off on that. And it, the it's the governor who sends it, uh, in essence, effectively to the vice president. And, and uh, let me just insert here why it's important that it be the governor. Because of gerrymandering, a lot of these Republican states now have an unbreakable control of the state legislature in the hands of the Republicans. Trump noticed this. His idea was the state legislatures should vote their own slate of electors, which they should submit to exactly. the vice president. This prohibits that and says only the governor. And governors, of course, are elected statewide. And there are some of the key states that have Republican control of the legislatures and Democratic governors, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan. We, exactly. we know these states well. Exactly. Uh, so this is a crucially important reform. And there's also a bit of a, a defense built in even against that, because, you know, there are some Republicans running for governor in those states. Uh, uh, this guy Mastriano in uh, in Pennsylvania, who is a conspiracy as a Republican, a conspiracy theorist. So it also gives uh, the losing candidate uh, a sort of an expedited uh, way to uh, challenge an errant governor in court if the governor uh, actually you know, doesn't recognize the result of the popular vote.
uh, in the presidential election. So there, there, there are a lot of very necessary provisions. And, and there's one other that, that is a favorite of mine. Right now, one representative and one senator can object to the vote of a state and that vote go, is put on hold. The threshold is raised in the new bill from uh, one per house to 20% of the members of each house, which is a, a big change. Yes, and uh, had that been in, in place uh, on that uh, on January 6th of last year, they would not have passed that threshold in the Senate and the challenges to the Arizona and Pennsylvania uh, votes, which in the Senate had been pushed by Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz, would not have gone forward. And there's going to be some rewriting of this bill, apparently. The weeds are deep uh, in, in this uh, area. I not sure we need to get much farther into them, but we'll keep we'll keep up with this vital uh, vital topic. And of course, as you pointed out in the American Prospect, there is one fundamental problem with the Electoral College: it does not reform. Yes, the the problem with the Electoral College is its very existence. Uh, the Electoral College works in such a way that the winner of the popular vote, like Al Gore in two thousand can nonetheless be denied the presidency because the Republican or the whoever carries the electoral college. And so clearly what we need to do is what every other, you know, democracy does, which is simply tally the votes, the popular votes. And that that's how you figure out who the president is, not through the 18th century anti-hoi uh, polloi, anti-democratic, anti-people electoral college. Now it's time for your Minnesota moment. That's news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. This week, Starbucks workers at a cafe in Minneapolis held a surprise two-day strike. Workers there had already voted to join the union Starbucks Workers United. They now say the company is lengthening store hours without talking to the union, which they're not allowed to do without negotiating first. I was especially interested in the statement that Starbucks issued about the strike in Minneapolis. Quote, Starbucks has great partners and we value their contributions. We respect our partners' right to engage in any legally protected activity or protest without retaliation. We are grateful for each partner who continues to work and we always do our best to listen to the concerns of all our partners. Close quote, Starbucks. Now, uh, what do you make of this statement? First of all, you should explain who are the partners of Starbucks? That's the euphemism for employees. Uh, so, you know, uh, just as uh, Walmart has greeters and people like that, <laughs> you know, associates, uh, this is usually used by companies which uh, want to deny uh, their employees their right to form a union. Uh, Starbucks is gung-ho on uh, denying that right. Uh, they've engaged the law firm of Littler Mendelssohn, whose entire practice seems to be uh, union busting. And, you know, they have already set up two uh, separate uh, classes of Starbucks partners. Those who voted union will not get wage increases those who haven't gone union will. Uh, whether this is legal under the National Labor Relations Act is highly questionable. I would expect to see the NLRB uh, uh, go after Starbucks for that, as they've already, I think, uh, found several hundred examples of unfair labor practices in Starbucks efforts to keep its workers from, from unionizing. 
so the, this but yet, yet in this statement, this statement is a very warm, loving, affectionate statement about how important the union is to Starbucks strategy. Well, the the uh, technical legal term for that is horseshit. <laughs> okay. uh, so uh, that's that's uh, you know I mean I don't want to get into legal jargon, but I think that's the term. One last thing. The news from Nebraska. It's something we've never covered before here, but now we turn to our chief Nebraska correspondent, Harold Meyerson. Harold, Nebraska's Republican Governor Pete Ricketts has condemned the state's legislators, the overwhelming majority of whom are Republicans. Why did he do that? Well, he wanted to call a special session of the legislature, and that required a one-third vote. It's a, it's a unicameral legislature, just one house. That required one-third of the senators uh, agreeing with that, uh, which would have been, it's a 99 seat, so it's 30, they needed 33 uh, senators, and there are way more than 33 Republicans. There's probably twice that in the Nebraska legislature, but they only got 30 uh, uh, to, uh, you know, s s make the anti-abortion laws even more restrictive. That's what he wanted to do in that special session. Now, uh, my theory is that Nebraska, bordering as it does on Kansas, that uh, a number of these Republicans looked at what just happened in Kansas, whereby a margin of 59% to 41%, Kansans voted to keep uh, abortion uh, legal uh, and, and to keep that legalization within the state's constitution, where it already is as a constitutional right. Uh, and lots of Republicans, given that, you know, Republicans outnumber Democrats in Kansas two to one, as they also do in Nebraska, lots of Republicans voted for this too. And I think the Republicans who didn't agree to call a special session got, you know, a serious case of cold feet. You can read Harold on the news from Nebraska, as well as other places at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Thank you, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Next up, John Nichols. John, of course, is national affairs correspondent for The Nation. We reached him today at home in Madison. John, welcome back. It is an honor to be with you, John, and a pleasure. Summer vacations. How about Wyoming? Most people traveling to Wyoming this summer are hiking in the Tetons or watching the geysers in Yellowstone or taking the float trip down the Snake River. But not you, John Nichols. You went to Wyoming to see Liz Cheney campaigning to try to hold on to her House seat in the primary, which is August 16th. The polls right now show her behind her challenger by something like 22 points. The New York Times says she has used the primary campaign as a sort of high-profile stage for her martyrdom, close quote. You saw her in action in Wyoming. Is this campaign that she is running about her martyrdom? She would hope not. <laughs> it's, it's, if you know anything about the Cheneys, they would prefer not to be martyred. They would prefer to make a lot of money and, and have a lot of power. And, uh, and, and nothing about the Cheneys has changed. Uh, it, it's, it's the critical thing to understand. They are still uh, Liz Cheney, like her father before her, and they're extremely close. Her father's now cutting ads for her 
in Wyoming. Uh, they are extreme right-wing uh, political figures on the domestic scene, uh, hyper-militarists on the international scene. They're mean, um, nasty. Uh, they, they attack people uh, in ways that, that are indefensible, and they always have. So if you, if you want me to come and tell you the Cheneys are you know, great and suddenly they're all good, I'm not going to do it. Um, and I'm not going to suggest that with Liz Cheney by any means, because I saw the awful attacks that she mounted against Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib and others uh, not that long ago when she was voting 93% of the time with Donald Trump. Now, with that said, <laughs> um, she has been a good player on the uh, January 6th committee. There's simply no question. She has fought hard uh, for accountability. She's been a very impressive and effective questioner and, and participant in that committee. And so the challenge in Wyoming is that uh, if she gets beat now, it's not that she's going to get beat because of the terrible stand she's taken on issues over the years. In fact, Wyoming tends to support those things. Um, it will be a suggestion that she's been beaten because she took this courageous stand to take on Donald Trump. And that's what makes the Wyoming fight such a big deal. What I will tell you is that it doesn't look good for her politically in Wyoming. Um, she is down in the polls. Uh, her only hope is a massive Democratic crossover uh, with basically all the Democrats voting in favor of a Cheney. That isn't going to happen. Um, and because a lot of Democrats in Wyoming have spent their lifetimes fighting Cheneys. Um, but uh, with that said, with that said, Liz Cheney has staked out some turf and um, and she is mounting an, an interesting bid that I, I don't think is reasonable to describe as martyrdom. I think it really is positioning. And I think that Liz Cheney is a consummate politician. She's aware that she could well lose this race. Um, but I think she's also conscious of the idea of losing to win and uh, that losing this race might position her for future political actions uh, at the national level. Her lead opponent in the Wyoming primary is somebody named Harriet Hagman, am I pronouncing that right? Basically. Uh, tell, tell us about her and what kind of campaign she's running. Well, she's running a campaign of saying she's not Liz Cheney. Uh, <laughs> and uh, in fact, if you uh, go to her website, uh, the first thing that she'll tell you is she's endorsed by Donald Trump. And that's, that's pretty much what Hagman's whole campaign is about. She is a deep-rooted Republican uh, on the right in Wyoming, she ran a relatively credible campaign for governor four years ago, and um, and she comes from a family with with deep political roots in the state. So if you understand her in that regard, she's a very credible opponent to Liz Cheney, not because of her experience per se in government or something like that, but because she's got deep ties to the Republican Party in that state. And it's important to understand that Liz Cheney doesn't have that. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about this because one of the arguments against her is that uh, she's not really from Wyoming. She's an outsider. Is that actually true? 100% true. Um, Liz Cheney was born in Madison, Wisconsin, my hometown, uh, <laughs> when, when Dick and Lynn Cheney were at the University of Wisconsin doing grad work. Uh, and I, I totally attribute anything good Liz Cheney has done to the fact that she was born in Madison. Um, but <laughs> the, the fact of the matter is that she grew up in Virginia. Uh, she's from McLean, Virginia, and that that area around Northern Virginia. 
And um, she grew up there, went to school there, spent most of her life there. Uh, and, you know, went back to Wyoming in the mid 2010s when she thought she could get into politics. And people in Wyoming know that they didn't see her knocking the doors, you know, for Reagan. They didn't see her, you know, like out campaigning at precinct events over the years. And I ran into conservative Republicans again and again who said, you know, yeah, I just don't know her that well. And even if they do know her, they don't feel that sense of deep long term connection. That's an important thing to understand, John. If she had was born and raised in Wyoming, or at least had spent the overwhelming major, majority of her adult life in Wyoming, I think she'd be much less vulnerable at this point because people would say, no, I know, I know Liz Cheney. I know that Donald Trump may attack her, but she's good on this, or I fought with her on that. She doesn't have that, that kind of base of, of uh, infrastructure for her that I think she frankly needs. And I think that's one of the reasons why there's very good likelihood she gets beat. When you were in Wyoming, did you find any Republicans who are enthusiastically supporting her? Yeah, a handful. In fact, I did. Uh, uh, I was I I attended the uh, politics in the park event for the uh, uh, the Republican Party in Cheyenne, Wyoming, uh, and you know had to dodge the sprinklers in the park when they came on and <laughs> splash the candidates. Uh, and I was out there with a lot of Republicans uh, who were anti-Cheney and pro-Cheney. In fact, I met some legislators uh, who've taken real risks to back Cheney uh, because they see it as a battle really for the soul of the Republican Party in Wyoming. And because Wyoming is so Republican, kind of all the energy of politics tends to go into the Republican Party. So there really are people who are much more moderate, and then there are people who are much more conservative, and they battle it out on a regular basis. And so those battle lines are drawn. And yes, I met Republicans who think that Liz Cheney's uh, win, if she could win in this election, is one of the most important fights uh, of their political careers. It's just that I met more Republicans who suggested that her defeat was the most important thing that that could be achieved. Trump has said he's worried about crossover voting by Democrats. Did you talk to any Democrats there who were planning to vote for Cheney in the Republican primary? Absolutely, I did. I talked to uh, Democrats, uh, you know, been involved in in politics and in criminal defense and constitutional law. Um, you know, people who you know who could come on on this show with John Weiner and have a, a very wow. friendly conversation, uh, who are going to cross over and vote for Liz Cheney. And the January sixth committee hearings have had a huge impact on that because they have revealed um, just how close we came to a coup. And for a lot of Wyoming Democrats, they have that I talked to, they've made a determination that they should cross over, that they that it's that important that that beating Donald Trump in this this battle, this proxy battle uh, means that much. I also met other Democrats who said they absolutely are not going to cross over uh, because a they have local races of their own that they're concerned about or b they're just not going to vote for this change. Uh, but. I will tell you, John, I expect there'll be a very, very significant crossover. Uh, I think a lot of Democrats will vote for Liz Cheney, uh, and they will do so with uh, one of two goals. Number one is to send a message nationally, but also number two is to, uh, in this very overwhelmingly Republican state, to try and tip the balance within the Republican Party toward a more moderate position. And 
Uh, look, I can't criticize that form of crossover voting when you're, you know, kind of outgunned politically, um, using your vote as best you can to try and tip the balance uh, in a, you know, moderately more progressive direction. Although I don't think we could use the term moderate progressive for the Cheneys. Uh, let's say in a, a vaguely more small D democratic direction. Mm-hmm. Um, I understand why people have chosen to do that. What everyone wants to know is what kind of future does Liz Cheney think she might have after she loses this primary? Well, uh, let's begin if she wins it. If she wins it, she will be the giant slayer, right? Um, uh, she will be on the front page of every newspaper in the country and the front of the top of the news and the cover of the magazines. Uh, and she will be positioned to do what Dick Cheney wanted to do back in 1996, and that's run for president of the United States. And don't doubt that for a second. Um, if she is defeated, um, then it's a much more complicated uh, issue. There will be people who still suggest that she should enter the Republican primaries in 2024 as the anti-Trump and that use that platform that she's gotten from the committee and from her fights against Trump to, to make that run. I, I don't doubt that she would entertain it because the Cheneys like to, you know, take their shot at getting power. Uh, and she's, this is certainly a part of where she's at. Uh, she's very ambitious politically, uh, but she's also quite rational. And I've, I've been around her in, in a number of settings. I've seen her in, operating in a number of settings. Uh, if it's an overwhelming race, if it's a not doable race, I don't think she will. Um, then you open up a whole lot of speculation. Uh, she could end up in cable television, probably not on Fox, <laughs> um, but uh, she could also end up uh, running a think tank of some kind. Um, and there are even people who suggest that uh, she might finally decide to get into politics someplace other than Wyoming, maybe move back to Northern Virginia and run for something there. Uh, what I will tell you is I have covered Dick Cheney and Liz Cheney uh, for a very, very long time. And I can tell you that the, the culture of this family, and I do talk about them, I, I'm cautious about this because I do. they're individuals, they have their own journeys and they are who they are. But there is a culture of the Cheneys, which is they take their hits, they get up, and they run again. Their, their goal ultimately is to you know, finish with as much money and as much power as they can get their hands on. And uh, I don't think a defeat in Wyoming would cause Liz Cheney to, uh, to stop grasping for power. Uh, she just find another way to do it. Now let's talk about the other state that really matters, Wisconsin. The Wisconsin... <laughs> Primary was Tuesday. The Democrats chose Mandela Barnes to run against the horrible Ron Johnson. In the past, you have called Mandela Barnes the real thing. Uh, tell us about him and, and what this campaign is, is going to be like. I've known Mandela Barnes for a very, very long time. Um, he is deep-rooted in Wisconsin. Uh, his grandfather came, uh, came north to Wisconsin and uh, was a, a member of an independent steelworkers union in Milwaukee uh, in the uh, you know, late Depression era uh, and, and beyond that. Uh, his dad worked for decades as a United Auto Workers uh, worker at a catalyt- on a line making catalytic converters. And his mom was a uh, teacher in the Milwaukee schools or was in, was a, in the Milwaukee school system and uh, and it's, his is just the story of working class Wisconsin. There is simply no doubt of it. Um, he grew up in uh, a neighborhood that was uh, a pretty rough neighborhood. It's one of the most highly incarcerated 
and impoverished neighborhoods in Wisconsin. And uh, he got into community organizing at a very young age uh, and was a very effective community organizer, ran for the state legislature and beat a a conservative Democrat in the primary. uh, And then ultimately uh, got himself nominated for lieutenant governor with a remarkable statewide campaign where he beat somebody with a lot more money in that primary. It was critical to the Democrats taking uh, you know, control of a lot of offices in the state. So the political journey is a significant one. The personal reality of Mandela Barnes is, is perhaps equally significant because here is a young black man uh, who has done a tremendous amount of organizing and work all over Wisconsin, including in a lot of rural areas, and has always understood that the way to build the coalition is an urban rural working class coalition that speaks to people in Milwaukee and Madison, but also speaks to people in small towns and and rural communities across the state. He's done that. Uh, He's got a base in that regard. Now the Republicans are gonna try and portray him as the most radical person that ever came along, right? Um, It'll make what they did to Barack Obama look like child's play. Uh, They're going to really try and smear Uh, Mandela Barnes every way possible. But the fact of the matter is that he's a very hard worker. And if he gets out around the state and people meet him, my sense is that the smears are not going to stick because people are going to say, look, you know, this guy, this guy, A, knows the issues, uh, but B, also knows Wisconsin, gets Wisconsin in some fundamental ways. So I think it's going to be a fascinating race, uh, an important race. And it is, uh, you know, this this person I'm describing, this dynamic young candidate running against Ron Johnson, who is about as lamentable a senator as you will ever find. It's a nice way of putting it. John Nichols, read him at thenation.com. Thank you, John. This was great. Thank you, John. It's a pleasure to be with you. Same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time to go back to the dark days of the Cold War, when muckraking journalists, independent Marxists, trade union rebels, freedom riders, beatniks, and peace protesters all found a home at America's oldest weekly, The Nation magazine. That was the work of a great editor, who was also a great historian, Kerry McWilliams. Now he's the subject of a great biography written by Peter Richardson. Peter teaches humanities and American studies at San Francisco State. He's the author of another wonderful book, A History of Ramparts Magazine. And he also has written the new book, American Prophet, The Life and Work of Kerry McWilliams. Peter Richardson, welcome back. Thank you, John, very much. Well, Kerry McWilliams went to New York in the spring of 1951 from California, where he had lived and worked. His assignment was editing a special emergency civil liberties issue of The Nation. What was the state of The Nation at that point, both the magazine and the country? Well, it was a very tough time for the magazine, and in part because it was a tough time for the country. Uh, It was really basically the beginning of what we now think of as the McCarthy era. And the nation was a punching bag in many ways for for the anti-communist right, of course, but also for the anti-communist left. And that included people like Arthur Schlesinger Jr., who was targeting 
um, the Nation magazine and the people who contributed to it and edited it. And Kerry McWilliams at that time was the West Coast, before that time was the West Coast uh, contributing editor for the Nation magazine. He'd been writing for the magazine for some time and very productively and prolifically. Um, that kind of anti-communism had become standard fare on the West Coast, but it was just becoming a kind of national issue of some importance in the late 1940s. I mean, really beginning in 1946. So by the time Kerry McWilliams agreed to come from Los Angeles to New York, uh, the nation was in, was in some pretty difficult straits. Um, it was getting a lot of pressure um, and its individual editors and uh, writers were being targeted in such a way that um, it wasn't clear what the path forward was going to be, and it turned out to be a very dark decade indeed, uh, both for the nation magazine and the country in many ways. And uh, But McWilliams was ultimately given the task of shepherding the magazine through that difficult period, which some people believe was probably the toughest decade of, of that magazine's long life. And who was Kerry McWilliams when he went to New York in 1951, aside from being a contributing editor to the magazine? He had been writing uh, an ex- extraordinary sequence of books beginning in 1939. He was based in Los Angeles at that time. He was a lawyer and litigator, very active uh, on social justice issues and matters of race and ethnic discrimination. Um, he had been representing farm workers and some very difficult struggles uh, in, in California where agriculture is a major part of the economy and sort of a politically backward uh, uh, sort of entity in the in the state level politics and and very very powerful at the local level. So he had been ever really since the mid 30s he had been mixing journalism and book writing and legal activism. And then in the 1940s he hit his stride as an author and wrote almost one book a year between 1939 and 1950. And these were very uh, finished, powerful impactful, hard-hitting books on a range of issues. Farm labor, I've already mentioned. Um, He wrote a book on the Japanese evacuation and internment that came out in 1944 when the internment was still going on, essentially demolishing every argument for the internment. In fact, the book was so impactful that uh, it was quoted in the dissenting Supreme Court opinion that very same year, 1944. So he wasn't just writing to, you know, preaching to the choir with these books. He was taking some real risks. You say he took on some risks. Who were the native sons of the Golden West? Yeah, that was one group um, that, uh, a, a private group that had organized itself to, uh, I wouldn't, you know, I don't think it had an explicit policy of white supremacy, but it would be hard to t- tell the difference in effect, um, he became a kind of target for them, uh, for sure. And, and he was quite willing to, to stand toe-to-toe with those groups, even though he didn't have a, a lot of support um, at that time. Uh, he was interrogated by the California Unactivity, Committee on Un-American Activities in California in secret session and executive session. 
Um, some of that, that, that the uh, transcript has never been published, but some of it is included in the book. It's extraordinary colloquy between um, sort of racist and, and anti-communist legislators and Kerry McWilliams. Uh, the Los Angeles Times was no friend of Kerry McWilliams. The uh, Associated Farmers, which was the big agricultural political action group at that time, uh, said he was agri agricultural pest number one, worse than pear blight or boll weevil. This is when he was serving in state government. Um, and so uh, J. Edgar Hoover had him on his custodial detention list, which meant that he could be rounded up in case of national emergency. Um, and the list goes on. I mean, these were really uh, high-profile issues that he was taking on and, and sometimes very lonely. And what I, what I mention in the book is that many of these positions are unobjectionable now, of course, but at that time, you know, he had to pay the wages of dissent. And uh, that, that was true in California in the 1940s, and then it was true for him and the magazine when he got to the nation in 1950. So, moving on to the magazine, in the forward to your book, written by Mike Davis, he says Carrie McWilliams, quote, almost single-handedly revived the muckraking tradition in American journalism, close quote. Tell us about that. Well, one of the things that's true of, of American uh, journalism, uh, especially in the 20th century, has been that it's, it's expensive to do real reporting. Um, it's cheaper and more profitable to, to run opinion and analysis. And I, that's both true for the right and for the left. If you look around, um, even now, if you, if you watch cable television news, for example, you'll see that there's not a lot of individual, you know, uh, deep reporting going on there. They're typically taking stories out of the newspaper and then talking about that. And that was certainly true of the nation, which has never been, rolling in, in dough. Uh, it, was, it was always sort of focused on its financial survival and, and sometimes had to go to extraordinary lengths to do that. But when McWilliams took over, he managed to create a space for some, for some in-depth investigative journalism in the nation. So essentially took, took a magazine known for opinion and analysis and created some room for muckraking. And, you know, they had a different uh, variety of mechanisms for doing that. One of them is that they would sometimes turn over an entire issue, the, the nation comes out weekly, and just give it to a long investigative story. The person who wrote the story would then sort of turn that into a, a book. And so it sort of made sense for the, for the writer. And the nation didn't have to pick up the total cost for all that work. And people got a real story about something that they might not have known about before. And, you know, during this time, of course, um, the nation was very stout defender of civil rights. They were an early critic of the, uh, our role in Vietnam. I mean, one thing that, that was true at that time, it's hard, to, it's hard to imagine it now, was that there was almost no reporting on or oversight of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. I mean, one thing I, I found out in, in doing this research is that at one point, one of the people who was, who was accused of treason, essentially, a, a, a State Department, I believe State Department bureaucrat, was, had, had charges made against him. And 
his lawyer asked to to uh, see an FBI file, and the federal uh, FBI director Jagger Hoover not only didn't furnish the file, but actually pressured the judge to convict the attorney of contempt of court for even asking for the file. So nobody outside of the FBI had really seen any of these files and the oversight, you know, the congressional oversight was very weak. And so that was the situation with the FBI. And and yet um, McWilliams was able to, to uh, run investigative reports on the FBI when almost, when that was almost never happening, especially in the daily newspapers, it's very extraordinary uh, uh, act for a small magazine, even a, an established one like The Nation, to to break that kind of story. Another example, actually, is when The uh, Nation warned uh, or reported on the buildup, military buildup before the Bay of Pigs invasion of Cuba. And that's kind of an interesting story because the story was later picked up by the New York Times. Later, when the Bay of Pigs invasion failed, President Kennedy, in a private conversation with one of the New York Times editors, said, you know, you really, you really hung me out to dry on that one. And the New York Times editor said, yeah, but the story had already been reported in the nation. And Kennedy said, yeah, but it wasn't news until the New York Times ran it. So there's a way in which these small magazines, you mentioned Ramparts at the top of the program, but The Nation was also one of these magazines that it's not just breaking these stories as The Nation did many times. It's also getting the other outlets to pick them up. And that was that amplifying effect is, is the best way for magazines like The Nation uh, to to really sort of move the pile when it comes to some of these big stories. One more thing we need to talk about, Hunter S. Thompson. Yeah, I mean, this, one of the... McQueen's brought along a lot of skilled young writers, partly because he didn't have much of an editorial budget. So he was, all, he was kind of a talent scout in many ways, trying to find people who were up and coming and... and, and wouldn't cost a fortune to run their stuff in the nation. And he kept files and press and clippings and so on and, and sort of scanned the media scene uh, very carefully. And, and one of the writers he identified was Hunter S. Thompson, who at that time was living in San Francisco. Uh, and he began a correspondence with Thompson, who at that point had only written stories for the National Observer, which is, you know, it was a Wall Street Journal publication long out of print. Um, and Thompson was flattered. He also needed the work very badly, and, but he didn't really have any great story ideas. He pitched a few to, to McWilliams. They weren't very good. And McWilliams said, how about a story on these motorcycle gangs, which had come into the news uh, because of, of uh, the California Attorney General had published a report about them. And Thompson jumped at the chance. Uh, he really needed the work. And, I mean, you know, it was, it was a difficult story to do. It, it, it took a certain amount of physical courage to do it, but uh, Thompson was just that sort of person to, uh, to give it a try. So he went out and rode around uh, and hung around and, and interviewed the Hells Angels, both in Oakland and in San Francisco, 
filed this story with the nation, which ran it. And promptly, Thompson received seven or eight uh, contract offers from major New York publishers. So that was a good example of the way that an intervention by Kerry McWilliams could really take a fairly obscure figure, Thompson was not well known at that time, and turn him into a best-selling author. Uh, Thompson, for the rest of his life, held McWilliams in high regard, almost uniquely among the many editors that Thompson worked for. He respected uh, McWilliams for, for the rest of his career. And with, every time he was in New York, would go by the nation's office and try to get some story ideas, <laughs> which McWilliams was full of. So Kerry McWilliams saved the nation from the hellhounds of the Cold War and made it into a bully pulpit where leftists of all stripes found a common voice in the dark age of McCarthyism. Peter Richardson's book about him is called American Prophet, The Life and Work of Kerry McWilliams. It's out now from the University of California Press with a foreword by Mike Davis. Peter, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you very much, John. We spoke with Peter Richardson about Kerry McWilliams in May 2019. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks, as always, to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Living in the USA.